Welcome to the Madam Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Giselle Arney. I'm a sports medicine physician with a passion for teaching and a mission to support other women with careers in this space. On this show, you'll hear the stories from amazing women in their field of sport and athletics. They'll share their journeys, triumphs, and hardships in order to help and inspire you in your own career and life. Thanks for joining us. Let's do this. Hey everyone, as I'm sure you can hear, I sound a little bit goofy, but I am fine. When I recorded this interview with Dr. Jockamson, I sounded totally normal, so it's just going to be for this intro and outro, but I am fine. It's all good. So let's get into this. On today's episode, I'm talking to Assistant Professor of Athletic Training, Dr. Kate Jockamson, about mentorship. I'm especially excited to share this interview because Dr. Jockamson is junior faculty, so she's early in her career, but she already has so much wisdom and insight, and it's nice to hear from someone at this earlier stage because they're going through it all right now. She's in the thick of it. Kate is an assistant professor and director of research for the Division of Athletic Training at West Virginia University School of Medicine. Kate was the first in her family to go to college, and then she just kept going, getting her master's, PhD, and completing a postdoc before taking her current academic position. Through all of this, Kate is no stranger to the benefits of what good mentorship can do. She shares what to look for in a mentor, staying teachable, and the rewards of watching that relationship morph into future collaborators. We talk about the extra challenges faced by first-gen college students like herself who need to work a little harder to find out the next steps at each turn through their education, reframing choices in our careers as opportunities that are neither good or bad, but just different, and how being a successful academic means becoming comfortable with failure and learning to separate your worth from your work. Hi, Kate. I am so excited to talk to you and have you on the podcast today. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So this is great because I was introduced to you by one of your colleagues, Sam Scarnio Miller, who I worked with many, it feels like many, many years ago. <laughs> and uh, she was actually on the podcast episode eight, and you're coming on over 100 episodes later. <laughs> so <laughs> it's fun to see the family grow this way. And I'm really thrilled to have you come share your story, especially because, and I'm hoping to talk about this, you are in the earlier phase of your career, not like the earliest, but you know, the front half maybe. And a lot of times on the podcast, I have folks who are well-established, have been doing this for decades and um, that's awesome. And I love to see here's, let's go back in time and see this journey through, but you're kind of right in it, in the journey. So I'm excited to get this sort of early career experience from you. Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, I love Sam and thank you to her for connecting us. Um, it's been a real pleasure working with her at WVU. Um, and yes, junior faculty, uh, just heading into my third year. So I'm in the midst of that, um, you know, learning what faculty life is like and sort of getting my lab up and running and established. So can definitely provide a, a little bit of a different perspective. Awesome. Okay. I still always love to start at the beginning with a sort of educational journey and you sort of hopped all over the country to get 100 years of schooling done. And so you got your bachelor's in human biology, master's in athletic training, PhD in rehab sciences, postdoc in biomechanics. And what I'm curious is from the beginning, were you thinking I would like to be a 
researcher in athletic <laughs> training and do this work? Or did you have different plans? And how did this sort of unfold for you? Yeah, so it sounds linear when you say it, um, but it was not a linear journey. Um, you know, as a child, I was definitely drawn toward the STEM fields. I really liked math and science. That was sort of where I excelled. Uh, and I also did grow up an athlete. I was a figure skater and I played soccer and ran cross country. But those sort of worlds of sport and science didn't collide until many, many years later. Um, so I guess from the beginning, I grew up in a really small town in rural Wisconsin. There were less than 90 people in my graduating class. Like our town didn't even have a stoplight when I graduated high school. I think they have one now. Um, so from a very small town, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I remember, you know, kind of like mailing my college applications in. They were like, you know, paper <laughs> applications. Um, and so my journey sort of began, you know, with that background. And I was very apprehensive to start my college career. Didn't really know what I was doing. I knew I sort of wanted to enter the field of medicine. I was really interested in human movement. I was interested in orthopedics, um, but I didn't really know how I would get there. Uh, I remember my first my first day of college. I um, I went to the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, and that campus is sort of secluded. It's surrounded by an arboretum. It's a beautiful campus. And the first day of class, I showed up, you know, 45 minutes early. I walked all the way around campus on the road because I was too afraid I would get lost, you know, going through main campus. And you know, being from this very small town, it was so overwhelming. And I brought all my books, you know, like. I was taking calculus and biology. So I had, you know, the textbook and then the lab manual. And, you know, so I had my backpack full and I'm carrying all of these books. I look back on that and I'm like, oh, you're so cute. Um, so, yeah, so my college journey, uh, you know, started sort of in a, in a way where it was a bit uncomfortable. I was a bit apprehensive. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and so... Yeah, but I, I enjoyed my time at UW Green Bay. I hopped around a little bit. I did some exchange programs, spent some time traveling, became much more adventurous than, than when I had entered college. Uh, and then when I graduated, you know, because of all of that traveling and sort of self exploration, uh, my grades certainly were not where they needed to be to get into medical school, which was my initial goal. And so I started to explore other professions that would sort of keep me in parallel or keep me sort of engaged with the world of sports medicine orthopedics because I knew that's sort of where my passion was. I really liked sports and I was still really interested in the human body and sort of understanding those systems. And so athletic training felt like a really good fit. So I applied to get my master's degree in athletic training, which now is... Um, standard in the field. All athletic trainers that are entering the profession now will go through master's level programs. However, at the time, it was primarily bachelor programs. And so there weren't um, a ton of programs to choose from. But I ended up at a great program down in Miami uh, at Florida International University. And there I really applied myself. I uh, did, did very well, graduated at the top of my class. Uh, and then I went to work clinically because I knew I really wanted to get some hands-on clinical experience. And so my position was great. I moved back to Wisconsin and the position that I first entered was really multifaceted. During the school year, I worked at a small high school, Denmark High School in Wisconsin. And I absolutely loved that job. Um, and then one day a week, I would work in the physician's office with a surgeon who did a really high volume of hip arthroscopies. 
And what we were seeing, I'm sure every clinician <laughs> sees this in their practice, is you know, two patients coming in that look very similar on paper. Their radiographs look very similar. Uh, their presentation in terms of history and symptoms is very similar, but they have the same treatment by the same providers and their outcomes are drastically different. And so for me, that was really the impetus to then go on and pursue a PhD to help sort of unravel that question of why are these outcomes so drastically different? And what can we do as clinicians to improve outcomes for those patients who are sort of getting left by the wayside with our standard of care? So it was not linear. It was sort of a, a windy, curvy path. Um, I was grateful to end up at the University of Kentucky to get my PhD and really good mentorship there. Uh, my dissertation focused on identifying psychological factors that were associated with uh, poor outcomes following hip arthroscopy. And then upon graduating, I realized, well, I realized prior to this, but at that point, I made the decision that because the set of hip disorders that I study, which are primarily non-arthritic and one specific disorder that I study is femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, um, it's a movement-related disorder. So we know that these folks move differently. And I really wanted to be able to quantify and understand the way they were moving in order to um, really have sort of that, you know, wide lens view of what are all of the ways in which we can clinically intervene to help improve outcomes. Because it's not ever going to be a one-size-fits-all. For some patients, it might really come down to we need to change the, their relationship with pain, right? We need to talk about some psychological interventions. We need to talk about um, ways in which we can maybe reduce their fear or improve their anxiety, or I'm sorry, reduce their fear, reduce their anxiety, improve their confidence. But for others, it might really, uh, you know, hinge on their movement and we might need to retrain that. So um, that's why I ended up doing a postdoc in biomechanics. And I had a really great postdoc mentor, Dr. Stephanie DeStacy at Ohio State. Uh, and so I was able to get that experience as well. So I think now where I'm at as junior faculty, it's provided me a really well-rounded understanding of the factors that are impacting outcomes for, for this specific population. But, you know, to circle back and answer your initial question, that was a very long-winded way of answering <laughs> it. Uh, it was not linear. It was very sort of yes. windy. Obviously, I didn't end up going to medical school. Um, I ended up, you know, through my clinical experience, kind of falling in love with this patient population and, you know, decided instead to go the research route and sort of dedicate my life to trying to improve clinical outcomes through that avenue instead. I love this story so much. I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows that the windier and curvier your journey, the more excited I think I get about it <laughs> because <laughs> I, I think we're all like this. And yes, on paper, very much it looks like I had this purposeful path and I got all of this background training so that I could be right where I am today and do this. But what right. actually happens is you're like, well, I tried this, this happened, and then I went here and then I found, oh, this is cool. I have this clinical question. Let me actually do some research to answer this question. Oh, you know what else I could use is maybe some biomechanics knowledge so that I can help answer this question better. And and it unfolds as your life unfolds. <laughs> and you can make a lot of sense out of these stories looking back like, oh, here's the clear. That was the path. But going forward, you don't always have that clear. Here's where I'm going. And 100%. so 100 percent. Yeah. And I, right? I think, you know, as um as faculty or as mentors to, to more junior folks, uh, you know, students and such, I think we put, 
not intentionally, which is a lot of pressure on very young people to sort of have it figured out and know what they want to do with their lives. Yes. And I just think it's, uh, you know, sometimes can actually be detrimental because it, it steals away that creativity that sort of develops yeah. through the process of just having yes. experience. Yes. And, I, you know, you talked about even in undergrad doing exchanges and traveling and doing work to find yourself and to just explore yourself. And OK, that maybe didn't help you get like straight A into med school, but. I'm sure that you learned so much from that process that you are actually better able to let your story unfold and to keep following the things that were of interest to you and keep finding. And you still have ended up in this sports medicine, biomechanics, body movement field, doing really great work and contributing and helping people. And it's just in a different way. Absolutely. You know, I definitely never saw this as my path, but now that I'm here, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think honestly, being a researcher is sort of the best use of what I'm good at. Like, I think I would be a better researcher than I would be a physician. Um, but that, you know, at the time, it, it felt really disappointing to sort of have to pivot. Um, but in retrospect, I'm, I'm happy with where I landed. But I, but I also think, too, um, there's no wrong path. You know, like I think sometimes yes. people get so stuck on like I have to make the right choice. And I don't necessarily subscribe to that philosophy because I think whatever choice you make is is going to be right for you. And if it's not, then then you have the flexibility and the freedom, hopefully, to to make a different choice. But I um, I remember myself uh, feeling a lot of pressure to make those types of choices. And I watch students do it now. And I just think we need to sort of change the language around that. Like these are all opportunities. Which opportunity yes. would you like to take? Yes, I could not agree more. I think this is so important. And I think that you change as a human being as you grow and as you evolve mm -hmm. and as you gain new experiences and as you learn more about yourself and the path that you started five years ago, 10 years ago, one year ago, just might not be the one that fits you anymore for whatever reason, or it might not be open to anymore, right? We talk about our mm -hmm. athletes who have traumatic injuries and their career ends. Yep. That's not always your choice, but sometimes yep. that path closes. And, um, but there's all these other opportunities and choices and, and you know, so there's privilege. Some people have more choices than others yeah, or easier choices sure. than others. But, um, I, I don't know. I think this is, it's really important to think about that. Like, right. So I did do med school and went that path. <laughs> and it is a very prescribed path. And I've talked about that before, but you're getting started on this path in undergrad going, okay, I want to be pre-med. I want to get into med school. So I have to take these 100 classes, right? There's mm -hmm. just not a choice. You have to take all okay. these courses and then you're taking your MCATs and then you're getting into med schools, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And then you are deciding residency, you go through a match, you're going to your, mm -hmm. like, it's just all laid out. And it's mm -hmm. a long time, right? You know this. You've been in school forever. It's a long <laughs> time. And if there's not always that freedom to look around and go, is this right for me? Was there mm -hmm. something else that got me interested? And so suddenly you're a decade down the path. You're two decades down the path. And you go, huh, was this, yeah. is this, is this right? Is this okay? Yeah. And yeah. yeah you know, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of like how, the path is entirely laid out. And I do think that that was one sort of disadvantage of being a first gen is just that I didn't know the path. 
yeah. right? Like I didn't have anyone to, sh not that, you know, there are many people who do it as first gen and I applaud them uh, because it, it's very challenging, but I didn't, I didn't know, you know, what I needed to do. Um, I didn't know those steps that you needed to take. I didn't, you know, and that might sound silly, but when no one before you has done it, yeah, it doesn't, it's not second nature, you know? And, and I, I do say that with the acknowledgement that I am a white female from a middle-class family. And so I yeah. know that even though I was first gen, I still had a lot of privileges that other people don't. Um, but that being said, like it was also still very hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's interesting that you say that. And I do think that we need to do a better job of supporting students who maybe have ambitions and have, you know, the, the aptitude to succeed at some of those because especially like you know medicine where we have these shortages we need people to be going into medicine um to help them you know and i do think it's gotten a lot better you know i started college in 2005 but uh to sort of funnel them and and not hold their hand but show them like here are the steps you need to take and it needs to start early on and here's sort of um the roadmap for success for a career in medicine yeah i no i think this is really interesting. It's it's one of those thoughts that until we started talking, that was probably an aspect of privilege that I didn't particularly realize, right? Like, yes, I 100% can sit here and say that, like you said, I'm a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, like woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm from middle class, like doing pretty okay with life, like have a lot of privilege. Um, but I also have two parents who both have like got master's degrees, like both yeah. did college very well and then got advanced degrees. And so being nerdy in my family and going to college <laughs> was just like the normal. It was not even a thing to think about, right? Mm -hmm. That was kind of the default. Like that's what the privilege is, right? That's the default and you know how right. to do that. And I did not walk around college campus afraid to go on the grass or afraid to <laughs> walk through campus or with all of my books or like not, you know, I was just yeah. like, oh yeah, the nerdy college, like this is me. I Like this is my space. Like I, it did yeah. not feel strange at all. So mm -hmm. it is, it's really interesting to like, see how you navigated that and you went from like first gen into college to all of the advanced degrees <laughs> like, yeah and it's cool because my sister then you know followed in my footsteps so my sister got her bachelor's degree in psychology she got her master's degree um she's now a school counselor and you know has been accepted into phd programs is still sort of toying with the idea but you know she has been incredibly successful as well and you know she's an amazing school counselor and has touched, a, you know, a tremendous number of lives. And so it's really cool to see that, you know, my parents did something right. right? Like we both yeah. went on and we both um, had those opportunities. It was just harder to navigate because yeah. we were just sort of, <laughs> you know, I guess one way to look at it is we were always in a very like responsive instead of proactive state of mind. Yeah. Because we didn't know how to be proactive, right? right? We were just like, okay, what's the next thing I have to do right now? Yeah. Um, and we didn't really know how to sort of plan. You know, we came from a really small high school in a really rural town. And we didn't have like a counselor saying like, okay, here's what college is going to be like. Here yeah. are your options. Here's what you have to do if you want this career trajectory. It was just like, well, here's the state schools. Yeah. You know, like. Good luck. <laughs> good luck. Ugh, <laughs> oh, it's. Yeah, fascinating. Just, I feel it's interesting to me because in some ways, I mean, that's not easy. That's not fun, right? You're at a disadvantage. 
also, I'm, I just wonder if you having to figure it out and if you having to be reactive and just make the next best choice, like the, the next best decision you can make for yourself as they roll in because you don't have this really deeply prescribed path that other people are telling you, here's exactly how you need to do this. Let you be more exploratory. Let you mm-hmm. be more, well, what's interesting to me? What is this clinical question that I'm curious about? Mm-hmm. And finding I, I think your own so. path. Yeah, I think so. And I also think that it creates resilience, right? That it creates just this like resilience and persistence to keep going because you, you have to, you know, and I think too, like for a lot of people who are first gen, like you, it's not a pressure that other people put on you, but that you put on yourself Mm -hmm. to really make your family proud. And I think a lot of people feel that whether they're first gen or not, but I think, you know, it's a, it's sort of a special thing to be able to like see the pride in your parents' faces, you know? Yeah. And I, th- I think that's probably true for everyone, but, but when, you know, you're sort of the first one in your family creating that path, it's just like maybe a different, um, a little bit of a different experience, but it, it but it's a strong motivating factor. You know? Yeah. No, I can easily see that because I like, I don't think my parents were not proud of me for going to college. You know what I mean? But I think right, it was also right. just like, well, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right. Like right. that's just what we do. And right. instead of, I mean, the I was talking to another podcast guest who will be coming out, um, I think before yours, but Lisa Willis, and she is a former WNBA player and has done these amazing things. And she was talking the same thing that you become resilient through adversity. Like you don't Absolutely. get resilience if everything is easy and handed to you. <laughs> you don't right. learn how to be resilient. And mm-hmm. if everything was easy peasy along the way. Right. Right. So even just getting into college, like that was a huge first step for you more than that was for me. And you've done amazing things with it, but that's also like you built up that tenacity, that resilience, that, that work to go make this your own. And you did that by yourself. Like nobody handed that to you. For sure. Um, you know, and I do think that, you know, because my parents, you know, even though they didn't go to college, were still successful. And I came from a middle class family and all of that, you know, I worked hard, of course. Um, but, you know, like we mentioned before, there's still a lot of privilege in that, that many, you know, first gen students don't have yeah. a- access to that type of support, you know, and I think now being at West Virginia University and having been at University of Kentucky and in Ohio State and sort of hopping around Appalachia, um, yes. you know, I've, I've really uh, seen the disparities um, and I'm not by any means a researcher that focuses on social determinants of health or any of these things, but obviously they're incredibly important, but I've seen firsthand sort of how those students are at even a stronger disadvantage, you know, when they don't come from a family that is financially stable, that doesn't, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that stress is a stress that I didn't have. I mean, sure. I had to take out student loans and, you know, all of that fun stuff, but, um, I didn't have to worry about where I was going to live or how I was going to eat, you know, those types of stressors that, um, that a lot of our students, unfortunately do deal with. Yep. Definitely. Okay. So I, this is, I would like to keep talking. <laughs> this is such a good conversation. I'm so excited. I had had a question about how you narrowed down your research focus, but you really yeah. laid it out. Mm-hmm. And I loved, especially that you laid it out as, you know, I 
I went to do this and then I wanted to get clinical experience. And then I was in this neat job where I got to do both the being athletic trainer and working in the clinic. And then I saw these patients and then I had this question. And so then I decided to get my PhD. I think, and you even mentioned a lot of times for our early learners, especially if they're thinking a research path, we tell them you have to decide the one thing you're going to study and do only that and start now because you have to be known for something. You can't dabble. You have to dive deep into one topic and you look from the outside in like you have you have your one topic, right? Or you have your two <laughs> topics, the mm -hmm. sort of psychologically informed rehabilitation and the movement-based interventions to improve clinical outcomes for patients with chronic hip pain. You, you were talking about that. And it looks like, oh, great, neat little package, but it didn't, you didn't pick that package in undergrad. No. <laughs> right? Like, no. no, I didn't even, I, no, no, I didn't. Um, and it's funny because I just followed my curiosity and that's where my curiosity led. You know, when I went to the University of Kentucky, I thought I was going to find that it was, you know, a, a, some type of physical predictor of who was having good clinical outcomes and who wasn't. It was a, you know, some, some patients weren't getting enough range of motion back. Some patients were still weak. And, and the, you know, certainly some of that is true in terms of muscle weakness. Um, but every study we did, <laughs> a patient's mental health or psychosocial health fell out as the biggest contributor to their symptoms, to their pain and self-reported function. And that was not, I did not set out to find that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the fun part of research is that, you know, you get to ask cool questions and be really creative in how you design your studies. And then, you know, you have to be open to whatever you find. And this yes. is the path that it sent me on. And I love it now that I'm here, but it certainly was not where I intended to go. Yeah. I, I just love it. And I think that whether you're doing research or not, that is an important sentiment to be open to whatever you're finding, to be open mm -hmm. to whatever you're seeing, open to whatever you're finding yourself interested in and following that path. And you'll, you know, probably enjoy the journey <laughs> a lot better than constantly going, no, I must find the biomechanical basis for this. Like, mm -hmm. this is what I set out mm -hmm. to do. I'm going to only do this and ignore everything else that I'm finding. Um, yeah. The same in your career. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's a challenge as an academic, but an important one <laughs> to not become so enmeshed with your beliefs or your findings that you can't allow them to change, Yeah, right? Like you have to be open to the possibility that you were wrong or that, you know, we know more now. And so my beliefs need to adapt to these, this new set of knowledge that we have. And so I think the skill of holding our work loosely and saying like, here's the best evidence right now, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, holding that loosely so that you're not sort of entangling your worth or your value yes. or, you know, getting too sort of rigid in those beliefs because um, that is not how we do science. <laughs> yes. Not if you're trying to really do science or do science right. well. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Oh, I, I think this is so important and really also translate to that kind of personal growth as well, that you're not tying up the work that you do with your personal worth 
And it's so hard. Yeah. I just want to validate that. And I know, you know, my family will listen to this and they'll be like, that's nice that you said that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how good you are at that. I know it's really hard. And I guess there are sort of two differentiating factors here. One is, you know, tying your worth to your result, right? Tying your worth to your work. And then there's the other of like being open-minded to the idea that what you believe to be true may change. And I guess those are a little bit different, um, but both important. Yep. So, yeah. So I, I think I'm pretty good at the, um, I'm going to hold loosely what I believe to be true and am open to the idea that it may change. I'm less good though working on the tying my worth to my success, but um, that is a work in progress. Yes. Well, and I imagine that's sort of also one of those early career things, especially because there's so much hustle (laughs) that is encouraged at the beginning of your work career. This feeling like you have to get on and get published. You have to get promotion. You have like, there's so many things and a lot of, especially the beginning, whether you, and I don't think this is maybe necessarily how it should be, but how you sort of are decided if you're successful is, are you meeting all these external criteria? And so it's, it's really hard to then separate your personal worth from your outcomes, from the results you're getting, from the advancements, the publications. And, you know, once you've been doing this for 30 years, it's easy to be like, (laughs) well, cool. I did it. I'm here. So my worth is that I'm a good human or I've mentored people or I'm a good mom or, you know, whatever your other kind of values and identities are. But especially early on, I feel like there's so much pressure to hustle and advance um, that it makes it even harder to sort of separate your worth from the work you're doing. It does. And I think one thing to add to that is that most people go into research because they're very passionate about what they're researching. And so that makes you want to do it, right? And so sometimes we see these junior faculty working a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot, (laughs) a lot of hours, right? Like in the lab all the time. And part of that is what you described, right? The hustle, the like, you know, trying to secure the grant funding, getting the lab up and running, trying to, you know, make a name for, for yourself. And a piece of that at least for me, is like, I love it. (laughs) I love the work. And so it is sometimes hard to step away and say like, no, I'm not going to to do that. But, you know, setting boundaries, I think, is a skill. And it's a skill that I'm still learning. Um, But it's one that I've also uh, am very intentional about talking to my mentees about and teaching them like, if I email you after business hours or on the weekend, I do not expect a reply yes. until normal business. Hours. You know, like trying to, and, and I do also want to model that behavior. And so this is, you know, sort of a tricky line of do as I say, not as I do, but I also want to do as I yeah. say. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so it's both, but yeah, boundaries um, are really important. And, you know, being able to, separate yourself from the inevitable failures of research is right. really hard because part of research is failing. Yeah. <laughs> you have to get very intimate with rejection because yep. it is more common than acceptance in research world in terms of yeah. getting papers rejected, 
grants not getting funded. Um, it's it sometimes feels like this constant stream of rejection. And if you're not resilient to that, and if you don't have a buffer to say, you know, that is a reflection of who reviewed that work, or that's a specific reflection of this work and not me, it can, it can become really heavy to carry. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> I think as, you know, a lot of folks listening to this podcast, we tend to be perfectionists. We tend to be <laughs> nerds. We tend to have done well in school. Like, right. We tend to have done a lot of school. There's a lot of PhDs and sports med docs and other folks listening who have, you know, achieved a lot and it's hard to not <laughs> it's, it's hard it to is. fail it's not what we want to be doing that is not our favorite but when like you said when you can separate that from who you are and your worth and just accept that as part of the process and accept that even you know even in research you're doing these studies to find an answer and the answer might not be that it that it proves your hypothesis it might be that nope you were wrong and mm-hmm. and the the response to that should be cool i have learned something mm-hmm. new instead mm-hmm. of like, oh, I'm an idiot and I'm a failure. And I think that's, sure. a, that's a tricky thing, but it's so important. So, okay. So I wanted to talk also for this sort of early career situation. You have mentioned mentorship a couple of times. So talk to me about um, your experience with having mentors, with, you know, being a mentor, but how has mentorship helped you in your early career? Um, mentorship is everything. I really believe that. I think that who you pick as your mentor um, will completely inform your entire experience. At least that's been my experience. Um, I've been really lucky uh, when I was at the University of Kentucky. I had technically co-mentors for my PhD. Uh, one of my my initial primary mentor was promoted to dean. Um, so he was pretty busy. So um, my other co-mentor, Dr. Kill Jacobs, um, I was one. Of, I was the first, you know, PhD committee that he chaired, and I. We have a great relationship to this day. He's a co-mentor on my K twenty three. I absolutely adore him, but he invested a lot of time in me, and he, um, to this day, is opening doors and yeah. is you know celebrating my work, and I think that is really reflective of a good mentor. You know, I had the same experience at Ohio State, my mentor there, Dr. Stephanie DeStacy, you know, she was um, still, you know, now she is an R01 funded researcher, but at the time when I first went to work with her, um, she was still in that hustle and she was a junior faculty, well, not as junior as I am right now, but still a junior faculty member. And um, she also invested a lot of time in me and to this day, she is still opening doors and we're collaborating. And, you're, you know, your relationship with your mentors morphs over the course of your career from mentor-mentee into, you know, still mentor-mentee, but also collaborators, which is yeah. a really fun transition. Um, but I say all of that because I was one of the first, if not the first, mentee in that specific role for both of them. And so I guess one message I would have is to pick your mentors based you know, yes, on their science, but also based on who they are as a human being. Mm -hmm. Are they going to invest in you as a person? Are they the kind of person you want to become? Are they the kind of mentor you can envision yourself being to your future mentees? I think that 
you know, both of those people are incredible. And, you know, I owe them a lot of my success and a lot of my career. And I'm very lucky to be able to work with them. You know, as junior faculty, I am really lucky. My primary mentor on my K-23, Anna Maria Vrancianu, is at Harvard and she's a psychologist and she has just welcomed me with open arms. Um, and I feel so, so, so lucky to be able to be mentored by her. She's an incredible researcher in behavioral health and she is the kindest, <laughs> most brilliant. I mean, I can't overstate how wonderful my mentors have been. And I do think that any success that I have had is a direct result of, yes, my hard work, <laughs> but also their guidance. And so I suppose my advice would be to pick your mentors carefully and to you know, be discerning. Not everyone's going to be a right fit. Don't just pick someone, you know, because of their reputation or because of their lab or because of their, um, you know, uh, funding situation, you know, really pick someone who's going to help direct your career in a way where they care about you as a person. They care about your family. They, you know, my mentors come to my wedding. Like, you know, you want someone who's going to really invest in you. Um, and I think as a mentee, what's most important is really just to stay teachable. Um, even to this day, you know, like I will call my PhD mentor, my postdoc mentor and, and ask them questions. And, you know, I think at no point do I ever imagine I will be at a stage in my career where I don't have anything to learn. And yeah. so I think being a good mentee is, you know, working hard and, you know, problem solving, critical thinking. I think those are skills that really good mentees have. Did you try to troubleshoot? You know, like I will always ask yes. mentees that when they come to ask me a question, did, what did you try to troubleshoot? <laughs> um, and then, you know, to just to be very discerning when you pick your mentors. I think this is such good advice. I talk about this in the Women's Career Transformation Academy, which is my uh, course to help women who are early in their careers with that building confidence, like developing a career that is in line with their mission, vision, and values. And I talk about mentorship and I, I kind of outline what's a mentor, what's a sponsor, and what's an asshole. <laughs> Sometimes. We all know someone in all of right. those groups. <laughs> Sometimes somebody looks good on paper and they have all the funding or they have the big research or they have the big job titles and and you get attracted to all of that, but they are not there for you. They are not there to support your career. They are trying to get minions to do their dirty work. They are trying to have power. They are trying, right? And it's mm -hmm. just a very different thing than finding a mentor who is there to support your career, which is different than trying to find worker bees to help them further their own career. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and truly, if you have a great mentorship partnership, you will be helping each other. And right. Will it's both. Both. It goes both ways. But you know, that, that importance that you outlined so well of, having the mentor, I evaluating them as a human being. And if they are there for you and for your career as mm -hmm. the goal of that mentorship for them and mm -hmm. not their own sort of whatever they need to get done, I think is so <laughs> important. That is awesome. Um, I'm curious as we're talking early career and as I talk the per personal professional development, 
you're doing research, you're teaching, you're building your lab, you're in this early career phase where you're in that hustle, you're getting all of this work done. How are you, if you are, what sort of things are you doing to focus on your own personal career development? Do you even have time to think about that right now? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> so luckily, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to answer the question, I promise. Um, you know, before we were talking about failures. And so, you know, I do want to highlight before I say the good news, which is allowing me to really focus on my career development, which is, you know, when I was at Ohio State, I applied for an F32, which is a postdoc grant through the NIH. It was not discussed. I applied for a TL1 through Ohio State, which is like the institutional version of that. That was not funded. I, you know, submitted a K23 that was scored, but not well enough to be funded, you know, and so I just want to highlight that I've had a lot of big grant failures. And I think that I just want to normalize that. Um, but recently, my K23 um, resubmission was scored really well. And so hopefully, um, you know, just pending council review, which, you know, you never know until you know. Um, but but hopefully we'll have good news in the coming weeks. And um, so with that um, comes a lot of protected time for me to really focus on my professional development including learning new skills that I want to learn as a researcher, including, you know, using mixed methods and really diving in deep to intervention development. And so, um, yes, I it, it is a priority. I think it should be a priority for every junior faculty. I think sometimes the time can be hard to carve out. Um, and mechanisms like the K Awards through the NIH are a really good way for junior faculty to be able to protect their time so that they can make sure that their prof professional development is a priority. I love it. And thank you for sharing the failures. And I know people don't love to do that, but um, I do I think, think that really to. helps with the normalizing that like, this yeah. is just life. Like it is. For and most it's of not us. a reflection of you. Like yes. I, I mean, it feels like it in the moment. I have a 24 hour rule when I don't get a grant or, you know, it doesn't get scored well enough, I give myself 24 hours to be really whatever I emotion I'm feeling, angry, sad, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and then I pick up the pieces and I say, how am I going to improve it? Yeah. And, you know, that resilience just comes from going through it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it, it gets easier. It, it never is easy, mm -hmm. but it gets easier. Yes. And so, you know, I do just want to normalize that, you know, you'll see someone who posts like, oh, I got this NIH grant on, you know, whatever level it is. But but rarely do they say this was my fourth recent. Yes, here are all the I times I did not. Exactly. And so I think that it's important that we normalize that. And there are people doing it. I'm certainly not the only one, but I do want to say that because I don't ever want someone to listen to this or to, you know, look at my Twitter and be like, oh, she's so successful. Wow. You know, and then right. hold themselves to that bar, not yes. realizing that, you know, it was, a, it was a long time coming. <laughs> yes. And I think it's also important to go, we're also not sitting here saying, failures are no big deal. They're fun. Absolutely. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Still have your 24 hours, have your <laughs> yeah. time to be upset about it. You get yep. to be upset when things did not Absolutely. go right. Absolutely. And, but, we but it's different to feel those emotions than it is to internalize it and say that you mm -hmm. personally are a failure. You personally can't cut it. 
And Mm -hmm. that's what I think stops you and drags you down and prevents you from that transformative phase of going, all right, I have felt my emotions. This is not how I was hoping this would go. And that sucked. But also, here's what I'm going to do next. Like, what did I learn? How can we move forward? Exactly. I love that. And I think that, you know, I do not subscribe to the mindset of, you know, positive vibes only, or we don't feel, you know, like we don't talk about negative emotions because emotions are just data. We all Mm -hmm. feel them. Um, You know, I like to help my students sort of reframe when they're saying like, I'm so stressed. I'm like, well, you're feeling stressed. Let's talk about what you need because you're feeling stressed. Um, and so I think that, you know, we can do that. We can provide that space between our thoughts and emotions and our behaviors. And we can say, I'm feeling really disappointed. I'm feeling really sad. I'm feeling really angry, maybe at some of these reviews, (laughs) or, you know, I I feel like there's been a, you know, injustice (laughs) or whatever, you know, um, And I can also uh, acknowledge that and, you know, sit with that. And then I can, you know, do what I need to do for my self-care to move through it. And I think if you don't feel it, it's going to linger. You know, it's going to stick with you. So you're absolutely right. You have to let the feelings come and acknowledge them um, and then, you know, move through. I love it. I love it. This is some of the work that I do when I'm doing career coaching. And it's really like, how are you? What are your thoughts that are leading to your feelings that are leading to those actions that are leading to those results? But sometimes you don't know that thought is happening. And so you're just having this feeling of just like, this is miserable. This is terrible. But like, what's behind that? Like, all right, we can have that feeling. But what else can we think through there? Like, how can we dig down into the thought? How can we find a different thought, still true, that would lead to different feelings that would lead to, okay, I've learned something and I can move forward now instead of well, I suck. I must be terrible. I'm never going to get this right. And then you stop trying. It's a totally different pathway. So I love this. Okay. So I ask everyone, and we've talked about some of these things, but um, are there any particular challenges that you want to share that you haven't already shared? (laughs) Challenges that you struggle with in your career, difficulties you've had to overcome or things that you just still struggle with today? Yeah, we have talked about some of these. I think for me, (laughs) one challenge that I have, and and I'm sure there are are folks listening that can relate, is I'm naturally very introverted. And so for me, finding the energy to teach and mentor and go to conferences and present, I absolutely love it. I love talking about science and I love interacting in all of those different environments, but it takes a lot out of me. And, you know, when I leave a conference, <laughs> I need like a full week to recover. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I know there are other people out there who feel that way too, but it is a challenge. And I haven't really, you know, if anyone listening has any strategies on how to sort of not have this rebound, you know, recovery phase every time you're at a conference or, or, you know, teaching, like I teach really long classes, the way our curriculum is designed, I'll teach like a three or four hour lecture. And, and afterwards, I just feel so tired. <laughs> um, from just being on the whole time. And, um, you know, Sam, we, we mentioned Sam earlier. Uh, she is, is quite extroverted. I always just am so jealous of the energy that she has. Um, she's, she's incredible in that way. But, uh, yeah, so that is one challenge. I don't have a solution to, I'm just, uh, presenting a challenge, I guess, um, that as an introvert in this, you know, 
field where communicating your science is one of the most important pieces, it, it, it can be really tiring. Um, yes, I will just hands up there as yeah. a fellow introvert. <laughs> At 100% of this rings true to me. And I, I, I find at least for the conferences, let, I, I'm super curious if other people have advice. You should tag us both and let us know what your advice yes, is. Um, but with the conferences, I have to build in. It's like setting boundaries. So you were talking about that before. I have to build in time to go, okay, here's when I'm just going on a walk by myself outside. <laughs> and here is yeah. when I am. Or to just know that I need to not schedule meetings with other people the day after the conference. Like I need mm-hmm. to just block that day for just, I'm going to work myself. I mean, and who knows what your schedule is like if you can do that, but it's not the day to try to go do another, let's meet with 50 people and make this big <laughs> thing happen. That is not ideal if you can <laughs> avoid that. And I also find that it is easier for me in smaller groups than bigger groups. And once I get to know people, then it becomes easier and it becomes less of that energy sort of drain, um, which sounds terrible, but just, it is what it is, folks. Like it's an introversion (laughs) thing, but you know, at the conference, the more that I have been going to the conferences, now I just know more of the people. And so Mm -hmm. there's, I'm still meeting new people, but I have a bigger base of, all right, I already know eight of the people in this group of 10 people. So it's less of that energy going, oh, I have to be on for all these 10 new people. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I'm curious. Yes. Let's, let's gather other people's advice. Yes. <laughs> Post about sure. this. Tag us. I'll put Kate's Twitter handle in the show notes, but let's, let's make this happen. I think we should. Yes. Introverts unite. Yes. Um, it's funny you mentioned meetings because I'm also, any of my colleagues or past mentors will tell you, it's like, I am very much, I resonate with all the memes that are like, could this meeting have been an email? <laughs> yes. yes. Why are we here? <laughs> yes. I get viscerally, me and Sam, because, you know, uh, I, you know, I don't know if all your listeners have listened to her episode. I would encourage them to, but she is just like so bubbly and, you know, loves to interact and, and, you know, is very productive in a meeting like setting where yeah. my mind is very much like, give me the information and let me sort of absorb on my own mm-hmm. and you know mull it over and so it's funny we often go back and forth and I'm like could this have been an email yes. <laughs> she just laughs at me she's like you have to come to the meeting <laughs> okay I love um, it so yeah but awesome. um I think the only other challenge that I can think of and this is getting better I will say is that as someone who you know a, a majority of my research line really focuses on the psychology of injury (laughs) and um, walking into spaces dominated, you know, with sort of that old biomedical model that's very rampant in orthopedics, it can sometimes be met with some resistance. And that has been a challenge that I, I do think is getting better. I think more people are realizing that this is an important topic that we need to talk about and we need to change the way that, that we practice, but it is a challenge that I've faced. And I know others sort of in this space have as well. Um, but you know, that, that just comes with progress. Definitely. Okay. So what particular triumphs have you had in your career so far? What things are you really proud of? (laughs) Um, you know, I think for me right now, well, I, I think there's two. I think I think one, just sort of getting to where I am, you know, just 
making it here <laughs> sounds very sort of basic, but um, you know, I throughout my life um, haven't had many moments of pride, but graduating with my PhD and seeing my mom there, that was a moment of pride. And so I think that that moment for me was um, certainly a triumph in my career and personally. Um, I think professionally, my my biggest triumph thus far is certainly um, my NIH K23, which recently scored really well. Uh, you know, I don't want to speak too much about it or, you know, sort of say it will for sure be funded because we don't know. Um, council meets in a few weeks. So, so my fingers are crossed. Indicators are pointing in that direction, but um, to be determined. So that's a uh, potential triumph. I mean, I'm excited. Still a triumph. Really, you really... still did well. You still scored well. Yes. yes. Put yourself I'm, out I'm there. Very excited about the project. So I'm, yes. I'm hopeful. Awesome. All right. And you have had a ton of really good advice already so far this episode. But my last question is just in case you have any more left, <laughs> what career <laughs> advice do you have for other women who are early in their career? Oh, gosh. Hmm. I I don't know if I have anything new to add, really. I mean, I think the biggest things for me when I meet with other, you know, women who are, are more junior than me, I think the biggest pieces of advice I give them are to, you know, pick their mentors wisely um, and to really change their relationship with achievement and emotion, you know, to really sort of put that space between themselves and, and what they're feeling and they're, you know, not to hang their hat on their accomplishments, which is easier said than done. But I think those are the two biggest things that will really sort of make or break your experience in academics. Um, you know, you have to develop that resilience. Failure is going to come no matter how good you are. So, you know, changing your relationship with that failure is going to either make you resilient and make you enjoy your time in academics or um if you don't then it's going to be very tumultuous and it's going to be really challenging to roll with the punches when rejection rolls your way um and i think in terms of mentorship you know just just making sure that you are investing in mentors and likewise mentors investing in their mentees um, because that those relationships, I think, are sort of the the keystone of uh, certainly my career journey, and I think many others as well. Excellent, Kate. It has been awesome to talk to you. I'm so excited mm -hmm. that Sam connected us, and this is you've had such great advice and insight, especially into this early career period. I think this is going to really benefit a lot of our listeners. So thank you so much for sharing your story today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Madam Athlete Podcast. I love talking to Dr. Kate Jockamson and hearing about her incredible journey. As always, you can find out more about Kate in the show notes at madamathlete.com. And I have some exciting news. This is a big day. Today is the first day that you can sign up for this fall session of the Women's Career Transformation Academy. I cover so much in this program from defining your mission and vision and values to finding meaningful mentors like I talked about with Kate. 
This will be the fourth session of the Women's Career Transformation Academy, and I can't wait to help the next batch of early career women who want more out of their careers to start taking action and get after it. Tonight is also special because I'm hosting the first free and live masterclass where I'll be diving into imposter syndrome and giving you concrete steps you can take to start boosting your confidence and centering your self-worth. Like literally today, tonight, it's happening. You can join for free at madamathlete.com slash masterclass and get a small taste of what's offered in the Women's Career Transformation Academy. Doors to the Academy close on Thursday, September 29th. And this program won't open again until like May or June next year. It's like we have a weird long wait. So if you're curious or if you've been thinking that you want something more out of your career, just come check out the free masterclass on how to crush your imposter syndrome and hang out with me live. I'll be doing a live Q&A at the end and we'll stay on to talk to you and encourage you and answer all of your questions until you just don't have any more. So grab your seat at madamathlete.com slash masterclass and I'll see you there. As always, thanks for being here and I appreciate you. you.